Hello, and welcome to Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor at Bloomberg Markets. So, Joe, I was away for a few days earlier this month, and while I was away, this paper was published with the uh, very intriguing title of The Fed and Lehman Brothers. Did you read it? Uh... If I'm going to be completely honest, I haven't read the entire thing, but I know that it's making quite uh, some waves in the world of law and economics and banking because it has a provocative thesis about how Lehman was let to fail and whether the official story really matches what happened. Right. So it was penned by Lawrence Ball. He's a professor of economics over at Johns Hopkins University. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a visiting scholar at the IMF. He is going to be our guest for today. But just before we start, you know, let's talk about the paper a bit, because yes, you're right. The thesis here is that the Fed essentially had a choice when it came to letting Lehman Brothers go back in 2008. And that when it decided to let Lehman Brothers go, that ended up being a massive mistake for the financial system, which is provocative because you'll remember that people like Ben Bernanke were quite adamant at the time that they did not have an option here. They had to let the bank fail. That's right. The basic argument at the time that the Fed said was our, uh, our hands were tied. There are clear laws about when we can lend to a bank that's in distress. Lehman wasn't solvent mm-hmm. and so forth. And they've stuck to that line after several years, even though we know what a huge disruption the collapse of Lehman caused. Exactly. So it's a big deal if, uh, you know, you go back and say, actually, they could have uh, they could have potentially bailed them out. And there's one other short thing I want to say about this paper before we begin. It is 218 pages long. It doesn't have an abstract, you know, the summary that normally comes with these kinds of academic papers. And it's also kind of unusual in that when you think about academic research, especially in finance and economics, there's usually a lot of mathematical formula, regression analyses, things like that. This one is different because it kind of relies on a lot of information that's already out there. Things like the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy examiner report, uh, the government inquiry into the financial crisis, things like that. It doesn't read like your usual academia. Right. It's almost more of a piece of investigative journalism, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm really excited to have Lawrence on the show. Let's bring him in now. Hi, Lawrence. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, Hello. Thank you for joining us, Lawrence. Oh, you're welcome. I'm happy to talk. All right. So let's start at the beginning. What prompted you to choose this particular topic for research, given that, you know, it's now almost a decade from uh, Lehman Brothers collapse, and a lot of people would be happy just forgetting that it ever happened? Well, first of all, I started it four years ago, so it's four years less uh, far in the past when I started. And the basic motivation, like most macroeconomists, I was interested in what caused the Great Recession, and the answer is the financial crisis. What was the big event in the financial crisis? Lehman Brothers, so why did Lehman Brothers fail? And like a lot of people, I had some doubts about the story that we couldn't save them, even though we couldn't save everybody else. So I just started looking into that, and 
you mentioned uh, the bankruptcy examiner's report and the financial crisis inquiry commission report. There's quite a bit of easily accessible information from these investigations. Mm-hmm. A lot of people give opinions about the crisis without knowing that actually, there are actually a lot of facts out there that you can look up. So you mentioned that you were skeptical of the original story that was told. Um, you know, give us your succinct summary of that story and what tipped you off earlier on or early on that, um, you know, may not fully explain what happened. Well, the story is fairly simple. The the law, Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, says the Fed can only lend if there is satisfactory security, which is generally interpreted to be enough collateral so that uh, the Fed is protected even if the load is not paid back. And the position of Fed officials is that that condition was not met, that the amount of collateral that Lehman had was much less than the amount of money they would have needed to borrow to survive. So they didn't have satisfactory security, so it wasn't legal. In that sense, their hands were tied. And I guess what made me wonder is just having read a fair amount about it, that they that was never backed up with any numbers or any uh, analysis. It was just given on authority that these other firms had plenty of collateral and Lehman had not nearly enough collateral. So I just started to look, to look into that. So how did you actually go about calculating how much collateral Lehman would have had? Because, I mean, Joe and I both know, having covered markets and finance for a long time, that valuing a bank's balance sheet, particularly in uh, September 2008, when a lot of this stuff was very illiquid, is incredibly difficult and relies on a whole bunch of subjective assumptions. Right. It's hard in normal times, let alone in a period of extreme acute crisis. Well, in terms of valuing assets, I used the best available, what I think is probably the best available evidence, which is analyses done at the time by Barclays and by Bank of America, which were both considering acquiring Lehman, and so looked over its balance sheet very carefully. And um, and then also by the consortium of Wall Street firms that was famously gathered at the New York Fed to analyze the situation. They all looked very carefully at the balance sheet and came up with different numbers about how much Lehman overvalued their assets. And the numbers were remarkably consistent and in the range of 15 to $30 billion of overvaluation, which puts them on the borderline of solvency and insolvency. So one interesting in this paper is you actually come up with a number for the amount of assets that would have been acceptable as collateral for Fed liquidity, and you put it at $131 billion worth of assets, which means that Lehman probably could have stayed in business if it had received a loan of something like $88 billion. Walk us through how you, how you made that calculation. Uh, okay, so, th- so that calculation, the $131 billion came primarily from looking at a financial statement, which is, again, all the original documents are on the websites of both the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission and the bankruptcy examiner, uh, a financial statement of Lehman, which I believe was intended for their quarterly report for the third quarter, which never got issued because they declared bankruptcy. And, and actually, that the $131 billion were 
assets that were specifically eligible to be collateral at the Fed's lending facility, the primary dealer credit facility. And those, those were actually not the same. The assets with the questionable valuations were things like private equity and real estate projects. There's a lot of subjectivity. The $131 billion were primarily uh, securities uh, where valuation was reasonably straightforward based on market prices. So, so I got that from the essentially uh, Lehman's financial statement that they were preparing. And then I estimated that they would need $88 billion of support. That is pretty speculative, but it's based on a mixture of what had happened in the last week, how many repurchase agreements they had lost and so on, and various internal forecasts of what was going to happen the next week. Also, the Federal Reserve did... There's no evidence that the Fed looked very carefully at the issue over the last weekend. In the summer, they did stress tests of what would happen if there was a run on Lehman. And they had numbers for, well, what if uh, a bunch of the prime brokerage customers flee? How much cash will they lose? How much cash will they lose if there's this kind of collateral call and so on? So I, I relied on that also. Uh, in your research, you pointed out that there were some a couple of voices at the Fed, I believe, who said, uh, actually, Lehman probably would be solvent. They do have enough collateral to merit a bailout, but that they they weren't really listened to. What happened there? So that is something that I don't know firsthand. There, there was a very interesting article in 2014 by... James Stewart and another New York Times reporter, mm. which was based on anonymous sources from the New York Fed. And again, there, if you want to be careful about it, there are actually two distinct issues, one about how much collateral they had for a loan, the second about their asset overvaluation and the solvency, which are related but different questions. And the way this New York Times article was reported the New York Fed people were looking at the overvaluation and solvency issue and seemed to have come to roughly the same conclusion that I did of that it was a close call whether their net worth was a little bit positive or a little bit negative. The New York Times article also reports that this, uh, that, that this analysis never made it to senior policymakers. Huh. So one of the more striking things I thought in the paper was um, you actually look at other bank bailouts undertaken by the Fed and the U.S. government, uh, including you know Bear Stearns earlier in 2008, and then later on um, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs also got some liquidity access from the Fed. And you point out that those operations were actually done on far more favorable terms than what were potentially being asked of Lehman Brothers at the same time. Uh, yes, absolutely. So it, it, in my reading of the evidence, Lehman Brothers just needed overnight, well-collateralized lending through the Fed's lending facilities. But I guess what Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs received in large quantities was what Lehman also needed. And that, and that was quite safe. Again, it was lending one day at a time with big haircuts on the collateral. The loans to AIG and to Maiden Lane, which bought the Bear Stearns assets, were uh, riskier. I mean, AIG is quite striking. The collateral for the AIG loan consisted largely of 
stocks are equity ownerships and AIG's insurance subsidiary. And Federal Reserve officials have said things like, that was good collateral, it guaranteed every penny of the money we lent, but, but I've never seen a valuation of that. And they're actually, in, in again, looking at the publicly available documents, there's some fragment here, there's some fragmentary evidence in the form of PowerPoint presentations of the New York Fed, which seem to call into question how healthy these insurance companies are and how much they're really worth. As I say, it's fragmentary, but, they, but they've, they've never given an account. Actually, I mean, another side story is that I requested some documents about the AIG loan under the Freedom of Information Act, and the Fed declined to provide them, and I sued them in federal court, and I lost. So, uh, so we we simply don't have very much information about how valuable. Uh, so AIG was lent eighty five billion dollars, and whether the collateral was worth more or less than eighty five billion dollars, we have very little idea. So, why didn't the Fed bail out Lehman? I mean, you say they theoretically, or in, per your research, they had the uh, the numbers could have backed it up. What ultimately was the reason? And yeah, why didn't they do it then? Well, so I, I think, based on my research, it's easier to say why they did not do it, you know, what, what's not the reason and what is the reason. So I, my main point is that it was not an absence of legal authority. Right. They had the legal authority, and also, in the extensive real-time record, there was no discussion of do we have legal authority or don't we have legal authority. What, we, what they were discussing, mm. and, and this is not an original point with me, was the politics of the matter. So... In particular, Henry Paulson, who seems to have been in charge of the decision-making, has been quoted by many people as saying, I can't do it again, meaning a bailout. I, I can't be Mr. Bailout. Again, in the record of emails between uh, government officials over that weekend, there are things like, we can't do this. The press will kill us if we, if we do this. So again, this is not an original point with me, but the uh, the idea that there was political pressure against bailouts is consistent with the evidence that I've seen, uh, along with not fully appreciating how damaging the bankruptcy would be. I think nobody, it was an unprecedented event and they were worried about it, but there was hope that maybe they could contain the damage and it wouldn't be so bad. Do you think that was an objectively wrong judgment that should have been known at the time? Or is that something that, okay, in retrospect, clearly the Lehman failure was economically damaging, but it wasn't necessarily obvious that it was going to be so bad? That's a good question. I would say it was not necessarily obvious because it was an unprecedented event, but there, there was the, the, the fact that markets had already seen the Bear Stearns problem and seen problems at Lehman and um, and the Fed was taking various measures to try to contain the damage, increasing their lending to other investment banks and several other things. So I I, I can imagine in real time arguing it either way. So I, I don't think it was obvious at the time that it was going to be as disastrous as it actually was. I mean, actually, just for example, some specific things that happened, the, the whole episode with the reserve primary fund breaking the buck mm -hmm. and that leading to the run on money market funds and the breakdown of the commercial paper market. 
that was very damaging, and that was a big surprise to everybody. So this paper's been four years in the making. It's been out for, um, I guess, a, a little over a week now. What reaction have you gotten? Have you received angry phone calls from Ben Bernanke or Hank Paulson, that sort of thing? Uh, no. Uh, ben Bernanke and Hank Paulson have not shared their thoughts, if any, about the paper with me. <laughs> to be honest, the reaction I've received is similar to reactions I've received to other papers critical of the Federal Reserve, that people I know at the Federal Reserve don't like it, and most other people do like it. It's interesting, both on the left wing of the political spectrum and the right wing of the political spectrum, there's a lot of suspicion of the Federal Reserve. And actually, much as I like to say that my people have read my paper carefully and it's persuasive, obviously people's reactions are based on their preconceptions. So I, I think a lot of people who are skeptical of the Fed have, have appreciated it, and people who work for the Fed or are very close to the Fed don't like it. You mentioned some people at the Fed and, and how they've reacted to the paper. I think when I was discussing this with some of my contacts who used to work at the New York Fed in particular, um, one of the main criticisms they had was that you rely on sort of third-party sources, journalistic research, some of which, full disclosure, was mine back in 2010 about the Maiden Lane portfolio. My former New York Fed contacts, they say things like that Maiden Lane analysis could have benefited from a regression analysis that would have actually revealed that the Fed was buying very low-grade collateral at inflated prices. So if anything, the paper could have been more forceful had it done some of the more traditional things that you find in macroeconomic papers. Huh, okay, well, that's interesting. So there are a couple points there. I mean, I think both my paper and your reporting on Maiden Lane, if I may say so, I mean, uses direct evidence about facts. I mean, if you actually had data on which securities exactly were in the portfolio and what their ratings were, and that's just data. So I think actually, um, again, there's lots of primary material out there that was gathered by the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission and the Bankruptcy Examiner, both of whom had subpoena power. And I think that's what I rely on mostly. I mean, as far as the point about regression analysis, I guess the simple answer to that is that one can add up numbers about what assets they have and add up numbers about what um, liquidity drains they would have had based on information about those things. And I'm not sure that high-power statistics would add very much. Is there any particular lesson for policymakers now from your research, or is this something that was kind of hyper-specific to an event and important for the historical record but may not necessarily be applicable in situations going forward? I, I would say that there are some lessons, I think, for any, any historical episode of this magnitude that understanding what happened is almost sure to have some lessons. In this case, lessons at a couple of different levels. I think the fact that, or the, my view that there could have been a better resolution of the crisis is important. Well, one reason is that, as I'm sure you know, the Dodd-Frank Act limits the Fed's ability to uh, rescue financial institutions. And 
it's actually, again, this would be complex, but it, but it's possible that what they could have done for Lehman, actually there, there would actually be legal barriers in the future. So I think it's relevant, uh, it's, it's relevant for that. It, it's also in terms of Fed governance or politics, the Federal Reserve talks a lot about how they are independent of politics and in this episode, that doesn't completely ring true because of Henry Paulson, the Treasury Secretary's role in dictating policy. The Federal Reserve officials also talk a lot about the principle of transparency about their policy actions and the reasons for their policy actions. And I don't think they were very transparent in this episode. All right. So tell us what you're working on now, or are you taking a, a break after penning this 200-page report, which is quite hefty? Well, what I'm working on now is largely did, uh, different things that I put off by uh, that have been put off because of this project. I, I do mainly spend my professional life doing more traditional research. So I run regressions to estimate the Phillips curve relationship between inflation and unemployment and things like that, like a regular macroeconomist. So I'm uh, going back to that for a while. I don't, um, I'm not sure what, if anything, I might do related to the financial crisis in the future. Uh, You know, on on this question real quickly about uh, sort of macroeconomics, I know it's always tough to talk about um, counterfactuals, but when I think of like that period, I see the layman collapse as sort of being a catalyzing force for some of the actions taken by both Congress and the Fed to start to turn the economy around. And so we had this massive collapse, but then we got TARP and then we got, uh, you know, a few months later, we got QE1 and so forth. Had layman um, been saved do you have a, any sort of vision of what the economic trajectory would it have been? Would it have been shallower but a longer uh, decline down, something like that? Like, what is the sort of, in your view, alternate uh, history scenario had they uh, bailed out Lehman? Good question. Well, I understand the question. What, what, what would the counterfactual history be? Yeah, like in in this in an alternate history novel, if you were writing it, and, and in that history they had bailed out Lehman, how do you see? things having played out? Because there was obviously still deep problems with all the bad mortgages that a layman, um, a layman rescue wouldn't have changed that. So how do you see the next several quarters and years playing out had they not let Lehman fail? So with the, with the obvious qualification that nobody knows, my guess would be, I think my guess would be it might be the latest, it might be like the collapse of the tech bubble or like the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. I mean, it was a real problem in financial markets and people lost money and it would have had a dampening effect on the economy. But I think the scale of the financial collapse and the scale of the Great Recession um, could have probably been avoided. All right. Uh, Lawrence Ball, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was great, Lawrence. Thank you very much. All right, Joe. So I think that was a really good summary of what would otherwise probably take a good um, hour or so to read. What do you think? Oh, I I thought that was a fascinating conversation. I like anything that involves 
multiple years of meticulous research into one event to really shed light on something that, you know, is probably mm-hmm. just sort of hazy in people's mind. Uh, it's probably hazier in my mind than yours because you have you did you did reporting that got cited in the research. But um, <laughs> no, I love any work uh, like this type of thing. Yeah, and I'm surprised this paper has you know it's been making some waves, uh, but I'm surprised it's not getting more attention because it really synthesizes basically all the criticisms um, you could level at the Fed or at U.S. Treasury over that time era, and I think. It's important to bring it up again now, specifically the point about how officials might have misjudged the impact of a Lehman Brothers collapse. Because nowadays, as you know, Joe, we're facing so many more unknowns, right? Lehman Brothers collapse was a complete unknown back in 2008. And now it seems like we're facing a growing laundry list of unknown macroeconomic risks that no one really knows how they'll play out either. Yeah, I tend to, you know, when I think back about the decisions made in summer of 2008 and early 2009, I sort of, you know, there was this sort of fog of war type feeling where you're right in the middle of it and you don't know what decisions are going to prove correct and you don't know what's going to um, have been a mistake. But it really is worth examining in detail, even if it's several years later, the exact choices that were made. And I think he was spot on that any sort of historical proper historical record of this stuff does potentially have um, have lessons for the things that we face today. Right. There's nothing better than financial crisis hindsight. <laughs> Isn't that in your Twitter bio? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm quoting myself. Oh, dear. <laughs> All right, let's go. All right. Well, on that note, I'm Joe Weisenthal. This has been another episode of Odd Lots. You can find me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.